On Sunday, um, um, student, an ex-student of mine, um, Jesse Appel, is doing, who, is a, who does stand-up. Do people know who he is? He does stand-up in China. He, um, uh, t he was a Chinese major. He took Chinese. He was a Fulbright in China. He went to China, and now he does stand-up in China. And he actually did a uh, parody of, are you guys... Um, are you guys too young to know about Gangland Style? No, you know about it. You do know about it. Okay. Yeah. So he did a great parody. He, yeah. Well, he did a great parody of it um, called uh, "Is it Loa? Is that how you say foreigner in Chinese? Someone who's not from China? Is it Loa? No, Loa. Lo. Yeah. Thank you. So he did something called Loa Style, um, and he got seventy million hits. And on like TikTok, and uh, and so he does he does all sorts of things. He does stand up in China. He's like one of the few Westerners who does Chinese stand up in China in Chinese, and um, he is supposed to go back next week to. He's the finalist in some show of stand up where they're, it's like it's like American Idol except it's Chinese stand up, and he's uh, he's one of the last nine people in the show. But he's not. It's not clear whether he's going to go back or not. Um, and um, but he is doing a benefit here at Brandeis. The reason I bring it up is he's doing a benefit here at Brandeis next Monday. At um, I think it's going to be in um, SCC. So it's going to be like five dollars for students and ten dollars for um, the for everyone else. So you should go see it, and um, and uh, it will be fun. Um, I think it'll be fun. He's great. He's, he's pretty wonderful. He graduated about six years ago, I think. He was actually in Japan when he was a junior um, during the meltdown um, and had to come back from Japan. And now he's back from China because of coronavirus. So maybe you want to stay away from him. Um, was your hand up? He's got, the ra he's got the famous radioactive coronavirus. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. He's, about to, he's either about to become a plastic man or, you know. The alternative guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want to go that way about the former student of his, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Anyhow, he's great. You should, you should go see him next Monday night. Um, unless, of course, he cancels after you've driven half an hour to go see him or something. You never know. Um, all right. <laughs> How's it going? How's the reading going? Yeah, man. Uh, so, I have a lot of thinking about uh, Act 4. Okay, and good. My thinking was intense when I read one of the passages you sent about, uh, it was called like, True or Truth or something about demons. Yes, da and demons true, true or false. Yeah, and then I kind of took that back to the part in Act 4, Scene 1, where the witches are giving uh, Macbeth his uh, prophecy mm -hmm. about the future. And I was trying to think of sort of who each character would represent. <coughs> and the one I think that tripped me up the most was the last one, where it's the, the Ring of Eight Kings and Banquo. Yes. And that one, I wasn't exactly sure how to equate that one. Mm -hmm. But then it brought me back to our conversation we had back in Act 2, where we were talking about how because... Macbeth had killed Duncan, he was giving up the opportunity to have a life beyond the one he has now, 
and that made me think that these eight kings plus Banquo are his sort of representation of the rings of hell. Oh, nice. You mean so in a in a Dantesque fashion? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, whether Shakespeare knew Dante is. Um, I don't know if it's debated. I think it's not known. He would certainly just, because this is a class where we try to be somewhat responsible to um, uh, reality, which is, you know, like fourth or fifth rate when it comes to literature, but still, it's there. Uh, whether Shakespeare knew Dante, I don't know whether it's known, uh, and I don't know what, what people argued about it. One place he would have known, who he did know really well is Chaucer. And Chaucer um, is, in fact, interestingly responsible for this is, again, not the first thing you sh people know about Chaucer, but it's a thing to know about him. Chaucer is responsible for bringing Dante to England. Uh, Chaucer was, in addition to being a poet, he was a diplomat, or the way he might have put it is, in addition to being a diplomat, he was a poet. And um, um, he uh, was sent on various diplomatic trips to Italy, some of which are mysterious, some of which uh, we don't know why, and they were kept secret at the time. But he was sent on various diplomatic trips to Italy. And in Italy, he read lots of Italian writers who people in England didn't know about. And he brought, if I recall correctly, and I'm pretty sure this is accurate, uh, Chaucer's pre-book, pre-printed book. And that means that um, what a book then was was something in manuscript, and Chaucer brought manuscripts of Dante. He was the first person to bring manuscripts of the Divine Comedy to England. So the Divine Comedy was known by some people in England thanks to Chaucer, and one of the tales in the Canterbury Tales is actually taken from Inferno. Um, it's the story of Ugolino. So, the, so since Shakespeare certainly knew Chaucer really well, he would have known of Dante, and he might well have known of the circles of hell. Um, it's a great idea. That is that each uh, succeeding, it's like that moment in, in um, To Kill a Mockingbird when, uh, what's the brother's name? Jeb. Jem. Yeah, I want to say Jeb, but that's the other brother. Jeb! Um, <laughs> Uh, when when he hears the guilty plea, I mean, when he hears the guilty verdict and the jury is polled, and every time a juror says guilty, he feels like he it looks he, his shoulders <coughs> hunch up as though he's been stabbed in the back. Uh, so that's what those uh, what what they could what those um, um, kings could be representing for Macbeth, and Macbeth would be the ninth circle. Is that it? The idea that he would be um, treachery. Treachery. That would yeah. make pretty perfect sense. Yeah. He's, he's his own hell. He's his own hell. Well, I mean, okay, if Macbeth is the ninth circle, you could also, you, you could make arguments about, like, what he's supposed to represent also. Because it's like, uh, um, if it's treachery, then he, then you could also go all the way to, like, oh, is Macbeth Judas or is Macbeth Satan? Yeah. Like, and that's definitely, a, like, the Satan thing is, is something that comes up a lot, so. Yeah. And uh, and he certainly feels as though he's Judas, that he's 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 violated the most crucial uh, and first law anthropologically in all societies is the law of hospitality. And that law is that you don't kill a guest and you don't kill a host. And he killed a guest. Yeah. And also culturally in Scotland, hospitality, well, especially back then, hospitality was so important. There was, like, the cultural rules 
where if anyone comes to your door, you have to give them food and a bed to sleep in. And, like, obviously hospitality is, like, a big thing all over the world, but in Scotland it was very, 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 like, yeah. a thing. So Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's a crucial thing. And if, you, if anyone knows, um, just to talk about uh, northern... Um, uh, Scandinavian, German, Scottish, or Celtic uh, rules in general. Um, if anyone knows uh, the the ring cycle, Wagner's ring cycle, um, there's the people who are going to fight to the death. The host who hates the guy who's just shown up, um, nevertheless, has to give him a place to sleep and food for the night. Um, and then the next day, they're going to fight to the death, and uh, the guy's even going to try to betray him. But the law of hospitality, that's the most basic law that there is. And that's what Macbeth has violated when he says, uh, first as his host, um, who should against his murderer bar the door, not bear the knife myself. So it's the fact that he's the host that really, really matters. And then... Uh, when he says to Banquo, fail not our feast, what he's doing there is he's playing the host again and then uh, <clears throat> murdering the guest, although the guest hasn't shown up for the feast yet. He's out riding, but he's murdering the guest who he is supposed to be showing hospitality to. So, yeah, that's, that's what treachery is. For those who know Dante, the... Um, there are three different kinds, or for those who don't know Dante, for those who do know, you already know this. There, uh, there are three different kinds of sin in Dante. There are sins of incontinence, that is, that you can't stop yourself from doing something that is um, uh, bad for you, um, or maybe bad for the universe in general. Um, so you can't stop yourself from having sex without with someone you're not supposed to be having sex with or you can't prevent your gluttony or whatever and gluttony is bad because it's maldistribution of of goods uh, then there are sins of violence which are much worse than sins of incontinence so to hurt someone is to do something which is much worse than simply to hurt yourself. So the, so the first three kinds of sins in Dante are essentially what we now call victimless crimes, which are never victimless, but they are, they are relatively victimless. The next three are sins of violence, which, uh, where, where you cause pain to others. And then the last three are treachery, which are violence combined with dishonesty. That is, winning the trust of those against whom you are violent. And the biggest of which is fraud. Yeah. 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 There are so many types of it. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, that, that's, a, that's a really neat um, way of thinking about these things. And uh, what the person Shakespeare did know was Spencer, who also thought about sins in ways that ultimately might derive from Dante. It's the, the lineage is, is a comp complex one, but Spencer certainly knew the Italian writers, and he also knew Chaucer. And um, Shakespeare really, 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 really knew Spencer. So there are various ways that this can feed into uh, the, the Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's representation of these ideas. Um, but he certainly sees backstabbing or betrayal as the worst thing you can do. 
and the um, his tragic figures when they feel betrayed, that's what they feel worst about. And um, his tragic villains, when they engage in betrayal, um, that's the worst thing they can do. One of the great <laughs> things about that you'll see in Shakespeare, and I think you'll see it in Macbeth as well, is um, the moment of final confrontation uh, between, let's call it, the hero and the villain. And, um, but it doesn't have to be the hero and the villain. It can be the main and the antagonist, or the main and the um, opposition. And the, the, when the main and the opposition finally face off in the last scene, as Macbeth and Macduff do in the last scene, <coughs> when they finally face off in the last scene, and no, you know, notice that Macbeth and Macduff don't meet. Macduff is an important character, but he and Macbeth are separate for most of the play. When they come together again at the very end, there is a kind of mutual respect between them. Even though they are trying to kill each other and even though Macduff loathes Macbeth, there is nevertheless um, a moment of communication between them where the communication is informative. A way to put this is to say, just in terms of the, the, the dramatic structures that we've been talking about in the cinematic um, um, or screenplay-like structures that we've been talking about, if you say that every scene is a scene of conflict, where what conflict means is someone wants something from someone else, is pressuring someone else to give something up, that, and they themselves are trying not to give up um, as much in return. Each is trying to come out a winner in this game theoretical interaction um, and come out with um, uh, pay, le pay less than they get. Um, that's what that, you could say, is, is a very quick definition of dramatic conflict, that each is trying to get something from the other and give up less than he or she gets from the other. You can also have cooperation where each gets more than they give, um, but each gets more than they give because the information you have is more valuable to, to me than it is to you, and the information that I have is more valuable to you than it is to me. So we compare notes, and um, each gets more than they give because it's not a zero-sum game. But in conflict, it is a zero-sum game. That is, that I want to get more than I give to you in exchange for what you are giving to me. Usually, the reason it's drama is that it's people talking. And what that means is that it's people conveying information. They're using language, and language is representational. It's not really, but in drama, language is representational. And therefore, in, repre in representation, I can tell you something about the world, um, something true, but I don't want to tell you that thing that you want to know because it will help you too much in whatever competition you're in with me. But I want you to tell me something <coughs> that would help me 
in the competition with you. So I want to get what you what you can tell me without telling you all that I can tell you. And so so let's does that make sense to people that that's just a a, a, a really 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 um, bare bones schema schema of dramatic conflict. And there's a way that you can see any dramatic conflict that takes the form of, of talking as a version of that. But at the end of Shakespeare plays, the conflict will sometimes simply be violence rather than uh, negotiation of that sort. But at the end of a play like Henry the Fourth, Part One, let's say, when Hal and Hotspur um, finally meet up and and do battle and Hal kills Hotspur, um, they're also friends. And they make friends because they have both come to this situation where one or the other has to die. And they know that they're in this situation and there's a kind of mutual agreement that that's where they are. And there's nothing that either of them is keeping from the other anymore. Each is very straightforward. Hal is the least straightforward character in Shakespeare up until that point. That is, in Shakespeare's plays, um, later they're going to be even less straightforward characters. But up through Henry IV, Part One, Hal is the least straightforward character in Shakespeare, but he's completely straightforward at the end with Hotspur. And Hotspur is completely straightforward with him. And that is the signal that dramatic conflict is over between them. And there's a kind of, you know, Holmes and Moriarty moment where when dramatic conflict is over and instead you get mutual recognition that on a different level from the level of um, plot outcome is nevertheless a very, very powerful achievement when characters make friends. And um, Shakespeare is always thinking about friendship. That's uh, in, in a week or two, we're going to read Montaigne's essay on friendship in the translation that Shakespeare read it in. Um, but Shakespeare is always thinking about friendship. The kinds of friendship that he's thinking about are, um, might be um, best exemplified by Hamlet and Horatio. Uh, Hamlet saying to Horatio, give me that man um, who is not passion's slave and I will hold him in my heart, yea, in my heart of heart, as I do thee. And then he says, but too much of this, something too much of this. That is, he's really spoken candidly, maybe for the first time. And what his candidness is about is friendship. In King Lear, it's the friendship between Lear and the Fool or Lear and Kent. But Shakespeare really likes those moments of friendship, but he also likes a different aspect of friendship. And the, I'll just say parenthetically, uh, and we'll get back to this, the equivalent friendships in Macbeth and in Antony and Cleopatra are friendships between Macbeth and Banquo and friendship between Antony and Enobarbus. And there Shakespeare is doing something very strange, obviously, with that friendship because Macbeth betrays it and betrays it completely. But at the end... There's the moment, like with Helen Hotspur, which is the moment of friendship would be too strong, but mutual um, transparency 
between Macbeth and Macduff. So Macbeth says to Macduff, as we'll see, um, I already have too much um, blood of, of your family on my hands, and I should just warn you that um, none of woman born can harm me. And instead of just saying, ha, Macduff, um, I fear him, I was told to fear him, but he can't harm me, so let's go for it. He doesn't know he can't harm me, so that's good. Um, it's rather, he tells him what he thinks is the truth. Um, he says, go away, I don't want to hurt you anymore. And he means it. And then Macduff's response to that is um, to tell Macbeth the truth about him instead of getting what might be a sneaky upper hand by keeping that truth away from him. At that point, of course, Macbeth is the window character. Macduff is the one who is telling us what we need to know. Um, but that moment of transparency, which is what windows are, that moment of transparency is also the moment of a kind of um, mutual acknowledgement between Macbeth and Macduff, which we're really not expecting, and which I think goes with demonization as well. And um, that is, uh, that's, a, that's a really um, neat and great achievement. Um, Nicole? Um, is the, the mutual, um, mutual acknowledgement between Macbeth and Macduff, is that similar to maybe Hamlet and Laertes mm -hmm. at the end of Hamlet? Yeah. And by that time, Hamlet's also kind of diamondized, so. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And what it isn't, no, th I think that's a really good point, that um, it is Hamlet and Laertes as well as Hamlet and Horatio, and the person who's left out of that is Claudius. Um, that is, it's Claudius should, Claudius actually wants that. Um, uh, and there's a hint that he might get it. That is that um, Hamlet calls himself and Claudius uh, mighty opposites. And um, that's a kind of equalization between them. Um, the fell and um, opposed point of mighty opposites, he says about the death of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, that they came between the fell and opposed points of mighty opposites. Um, but Claudius turns out not to be that mighty an opposite. And uh, it's Laertes who takes over that function. So yeah, I think that's a really, uh, really good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, so the place that um, we, I want, to, I want us to look again at Banquo coming to the feast, but the place that, uh, where we can see the friendship between Banquo and Macbeth, again, is at the end of Act One. There, the, later on, as well, when Macbeth says, I don't think of them, Banquo wants to talk more about the witches in um, Act Two. And Macbeth says, no, I, I really don't think about them. Uh, don't worry about it. But in Act One, yeah. Matt. Um, this is, might be a little topic. I'll let you Sorry. Okay, so there is that moment, again, just, just to remind us, there is that wonderful moment in Act One, after the witches disappear, that um, Macbeth says to Banquo, your children shall be kings. And Banquo says, you shall be king." And there each is talking to the other. And I think the right way to play that is that it's still a moment of friendship between them. That is that Macbeth isn't really, of course he's thinking about the fact that he's going to become king. But he's also glad 
that Banquo is part of the felicitous prophecy for the future, your children shall be kings, and Banquo is um, glad, at least if you play it that way, and I think it's the right way to play it because otherwise you can't get their friendship, that Macbeth will be king. And I think this is one of the places where the source, both what the source is and the way Shakespeare changes the sources, um, both the sources and the way Shakespeare changes them, are really telling, which is that in the source, as you know, Banquo helps Macbeth kill the Duncan figure. That is, they're friends, and they're friends for evil. That is, they are both plotting um, against Duncan. And then um, after Duncan is killed, then they fall out, but they're both plotting against Duncan. And what Shakespeare is taking from that is the idea that they're tight. That is, that the future that's predicted for them is a mutual future, in, just as in alleged reality. Uh, it's not actual reality, but in alleged reality, Banquo and Macbeth work together. So too, in this play, they work together. They work together for different things in um, the historical source from what they work together to do in um, uh, the play. But the working together, that's something that Shakespeare really wanted to keep um, with the two of them. Yeah. So back to that friendship. If Macbeth had decided to wait and not go through with his plan to kill Duncan, could we say that the opposite story would happen, where instead Banquo would try to kill off Macbeth to ensure that Fleance got the throne as the witches prophesized? That's a nice idea. Uh, so, where what would the evidence for it be in the play? Okay, Cassie might have an answer. Well, I don't have an answer. I think that I like that idea, but I don't think that it can work. But only because if Banquo thinks that any part of the prophecy is going to come true the Macbeth part has to come true like he, he has to allow the steps to start to take place so I don't think that there's a utility to him I guess like if Macbeth became king and then he killed Macbeth yeah. sort of years down the road or days I, or hours but I think that even that I think that it feels like not it, it feels like not quite aligning with the prophecy yeah. I'm not explaining that well but well yeah it might be something like if Macbeth becomes king then um, it, you could say that it looks like the prophecy will work out. But what if you, what if you think of the... All right, yeah, let, I'm sorry, let other people speak. Sun Kang, did you want to talk about this? Or? Yeah, I just uh, clarify a question. So are you saying that Shakespeare is not a friendship as a philosopher as a, or as a dramatist? Because yes. As a philosopher, then he would be seeing them as, as actual persons. And, uh, so this kind of question would matter, because then what if it was painful rather than that, that did this? But yeah. if he views friendship as a dramatist, then it is kind of necessary that this event, this course event should unfold because it's kind of, that's how this drama should unfold itself. Wait, so as a dra so, wait, so are you saying as a dramatist because friendship, um, one reason that there's so many buddy movies and one reason that friendship is so important in most drama is that friends are window characters. Yeah. Um, in, in the older vocabulary uh, dramatic 
vocabulary. Um, instead of saying a window, you say a confidant. Um, that is the person who the person whose fortunes we're following has to have someone that they can talk to in order for us to see what their intentions and plans are. Um, but you could also say that friendship is something that audiences like. Um, a really good friendship is something that um, audiences like better than anything. And it's a really hard thing to do, but if it's done well, um, audiences, it, it's a thing audiences like most, is to see a true friendship. And um, that can be, you know, audiences for a drama would like that most as well. Um, what was the alternative? The, if he's thinking of it as a philosopher. So the, just to, just to uh, anticipate a little bit on Montaigne, um, Montaigne in his essay on friendship is thinking about his best friend. And he writes in a margin, this is a very famous margi uh, marginal note in his manuscript. Um, he's trying to think, um, how did, how, why were they such good friends? And um, then he wrote in the margin, um, because it was him, and then after that, he wrote, we know this because the ink color was different, um, but even after that, he decided because it was him, explained it, but not quite enough. But just that enough, take that as an explanation, because it was him. Um, and then, to explain it still farther, he wrote, because it was me. And so because it was him, because it was me. That's why they were friends. And I think that for Shakespeare, that's the moment of you shall be king, your children shall Shelby Kings. Yeah. Um, well, sort of going back a little bit to the discussion we had before about Banquo and Macbeth, I would potentially argue that Banquo, I don't want to say he's a better friend, but he doesn't have Lady Macbeth sort of like spurring and diet and like making him go and kill his friend. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would argue that like one of the reasons why um, Banquo wouldn't he would let the prophecy unfold and sort of let it unfold in whatever way the world sees fit is because I feel like Lady Macbeth is the guiding character, really. Like, Macbeth is the prophecy, and he's like, oh, cool, yeah. that's great. And then he goes up, he's like, look what I heard today. And then his wife is like, you should kill the king. Like, I, Banquo doesn't, ha or at least we don't see his wife, and maybe she is like that, but I don't think she is. And I would argue that that is sort of back on the other point. And also I think Banquo is a friend who wouldn't try and kill his friends. But that's another point. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. Um, sort of similar to that, I also feel like Banquo's prophecy is like less urgent. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I think Macbeth kind of reflects on the fact that like his fortune kind of has a time stamp because it's like so limited. So it's like, this is something that he can only enact like, in his life and like, Lenoreth is like, oh, the sooner the better, or whatever, but then it, there, it seems more urgent, whereas, like, somewhere down the line, like, your descendants will be kings, and I feel like there's not necessarily, like, a need for Banquo to kill Macbeth, even if Macbeth were to become king, because, like, Macbeth doesn't have any children, so, like, if the line is going to, like, deflect to, like, Fleance, then it's gonna, like... Yeah, and... and, and it's probably the case that there's nothing that, well, it, it, it seems almost certainly the case that Banquo can't possibly live to see a child of his become king. Because if it's, um, the only way it's going to happen is if the, the oldest or first living um, ancestor 
of the subsequent kings as king. And as long as Banquo is alive, if he's not going to become king, he will never see that future happen. Um, yeah, Talia. So two things that I'm thinking about. Um, <clears throat> Is it possible to consider that Lady Macbeth is actually the true best friend to Macbeth rather than Banquo in that, like, Macbeth can't really, you know, say, like, oh, yeah, I killed King Duncan and these are all my thoughts and feelings about it, and it's really through Lady Macbeth that we fully understand the implications of what they've done. Mm -hmm. And so, like, along that thread, I would say that the outcome of the play is still completely possible even if Banquo weren't necessarily a character. Like, if that kind of line wasn't, was never written into the play, yeah. he would still eventually face Macduff, and, mm -hmm. you know, the play would conclude the same way. Yeah, good, good, nice. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Um, Nicole? Couldn't you also see Lady Macbeth as the opposite of best friend, someone who Macbeth thinks... Friend of me. <laughs> Macbeth thinks he can trust by giving her all this information, but she's really almost like like Claudius's Telerites or the ghost is to Hamlet, where she, he's giving her all this information and he's weak and emotional and she's sending him off to go get killed, basically, to fulfill her desire. So do you like her? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, well, you think she's fantastic? Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. I mean, to, to that point, something that stood out to me... Um, I can't remember which reading it was in, but it talks about how Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are truly in love, and they're like one of the only couples in Shakespeare that's actually in love with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like her pressure to, you know, fulfill the prophecy isn't necessarily preying on like a weaker side of Macbeth. I think that they both want the same thing, she's just able to verbalize it in a way that he isn't. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily see that as, like, her taking advantage in the same way that the ghost, you know, was taking advantage of Hamlet or, like, sending him to his death. Because I don't think that either of them believes that, you know, if they continue with trying to fulfill it, it will end necessarily poorly. I think that, you know, they understand that killing Duncan is, you know, going to prevent them from having a happy afterlife, etc. But um, I think they truly do believe that if Duncan is out of the way, Macbeth will be king and everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, the ghost in Hamlet knows that if he kills Claudius, that's, you know, his death sentence. Um, but I truly believe that because they are very much in love with each other, they share the same goal. Okay, good. Um, Matthew, then Matt. And also, if I could take a quick look at uh, Act that we haven't technically read it for this class yet. Yes, we have. We've read the whole play for the class. We're, we haven't reread oh, Act 5. Yeah, but, um, there's, she's also not a completely guiltless character, like, from her own point of view. There's the scene where she's sleepwalking, yeah. and she's hallucinating about trying to wash the blood off her own hands. And it's remarkably similar to Macbeth's own views on the situation. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think that kind of supports the same idea, where she's not uh, categorically... Uh, an antagonist to Macbeth or a worse side of him because she, in a lot of ways, is very similar to him. Yeah, at the end of the day, the, the same realization happens. It's just for, for Lady Macbeth to happen much later. Yeah, I mean, remember Macbeth says he can't wash the blood, that 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 um, all all the all the sea can't um, 
uh, can't remove the blood from his hand, but the blood would the multitudinous sea incarnadine, making the green one red. Um, that is, this one drop of blood will turn the sea red rather than the sea, um, diluting it so that it's completely washed away. Um, Matt first, then, then Ty. So, back to what you were talking about with the ghost from Hamlet. If we were to believe this paradox story, because I know last semester we argued that the ghost from Hamlet is not necessarily the ghost of his father, but rather a representation of Hamlet's suppressed feelings towards his uncle, if the story were to play out where the opposite effect would happen, where Banquo killed Macbeth in order to get Fleance upon the throne, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how that would go, because with Macbeth, it's directly tied to him already being with the crown, but because his son is king, not him, I'm not sure how that would affect him, because that might give Fleance a vision of possibly negativity or perhaps an inherited trait of paranoia from his father mm -hmm. in the case that uh, Banquo would be feeling that sort of emotion of guilt like we were discussing earlier versus Macbeth who because I don't exactly remember if Leon dies or not there's that overwhelming like chain in the end of thinking about I killed my best friend, so now his children cannot be, you know, on the throne. But then there's that question in his head of whether or not Fleance is alive because the murderer indeed told him that Fleance escaped. Fleance lives, yeah. and yeah. actually it was, and I read this recently, that it was known at the time, because Fleance is not put on the throne at the end, no. but it was known at the time that Fleance's descendants would end up being, right. would end up being royalty. Yeah, so, so yes, just... Fleance lives. Just, just to be clear on this, Fleance and Banquo are not actual historical figures. They're made-up figures. The historians made them up. Um, and so if you read uh, the history of Scotland that Holmshead is, is um, using and that he then um, uh, repeats, um, the, in order for the Stuart dynasty to have its source... Um, they were told a made-up story about how um, Macbeth uh, killed Duncan and um, eventually his friend, and that the witches, I mean, this is all the stuff you re read, the witches weren't real, they didn't make these prophecies, and there was no Banquo and Fleance to make them too. So these were invented mythological figures who were stuck into the history of the Stuart dynasty at its very beginning, but who, uh, you know, where the Stuarts really came from is a lot hazier, um, but they were given as people are, as, you know, Aeneas in the Aeneid, um, they're given a source that uh, then, then ratifies who they are. So... Shakespeare did think Fleance and um, Banquo were real because he read the histories, um, but in fact they weren't. But if you think of the, uh, the moment that we looked at, which is the, uh, Banquo not wanting to go to sleep because of the thoughts that nature gives way to in repose, and also his thinking, I feared that thou hast played most foully for it. Now, now thou art king, but I feel, fear thou hast played played most foully for it. Um, Banquo suspects Macbeth 
of the murder of Duncan. Obviously, he's not the only one. Lennox has that amazing um, scene where he says people shouldn't ride too too late, and um, you know there are various things you shouldn't do because they get you killed. And um, Macbeth always weeps when you're killed. Um, but the um, if you ask. Um, what it is when Banquo says, I fear thou hast played most foully for it, we already know that's true. So why is that in the play? Uh, why does Banquo... A, a thing you can ask about the play is, is, or a thing you can notice about the play is just how richly characterized Banquo is mm-hmm. for a character who isn't really giving us any information that we don't already have, um, that we haven't already seen with our own eyes. That is, you could easily make Banquo a much more um, two-dimensional character, and you would lose nothing, or almost nothing, or the question to ask is, what besides the character of Banquo would you lose if you made Banquo a two-dimensional character? What else would the play lose if Banquo were two-dimensional? Yeah. I think you would lose a lot of the friendship and a lot of the humanity. Yeah. Because, I, like, in saying that, yes, we we know that he killed Duncan, but Banquo bringing it up is almost a bit... is him almost, like, going up to his friend and being like, D- like, I couldn't see you. Did you do this? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I keep thinking this. I don't really know. And, like, it's sort of like... Not a betrayal, but sort of like a bit of a betrayal to Macbeth. Yeah. In the sense that his best friend would think that of him, even yeah. though he did do it. Yeah. Still, the fact that he, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like it, the humanity and the big part of the friendship is sort of like, you know, trust is always a big part of friendship, and yeah. I assume back then it was as well. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No. Know, no. And, when, and Banquo, um, and Macbeth does try to have a conversation with Banquo and fails. Mm. That is, um, he says, uh, he, he, he tries to bring it up with Banquo. Mm. And Banquo kind of pretends that he's not thinking the thoughts that he's thinking. And Macbeth has wanted to talk to him and says, okay, we'll, t- we'll talk tomorrow. And um, they don't. Um, but that little moment where um, it looks like Macbeth wants to confide somehow in Banquo which again is the pull of the history on the play. One of the, as you'll see in Anne and Cleopatra, we see Anne and Cleopatra, um, Shakespeare is really interested in trying to keep the historical elements in the play, even when he um, screws around with them. And um, for example, Cordelia is hanged at the end of King Lear. And um, that is... You all know that that's not what the history said, right? Is this um, so? With Doctor Johnson, whom we've been reading, he was the one who couldn't reread King Lear. That's where Nahum Tate, um, why Nahum Tate's version of Lear was the one that people read, because Tate gives it a happy ending. Um, Johnson says he prefers Tate to um, Shakespeare. He prefers that version of the play to Shakespeare, because. Not only did Shakespeare not observe poetic justice, and that's not Johnson's term, that's a term that goes back about 70 years before that, but not only did Shakespeare not observe poetic justice, 
Uh, where poetic, ju poetic justice is not what we mean by it. Poetic justice is not when you're hoist by your own petard. Poetic justice means that an audience feels, um, originally meant that an audience feels when a play is performed that justice has been done. That things might be sad, they might be terrible, the world might be an unfortunate place, but justice has been done. And so there is a question about King Lear whether the end of the play is a just outcome or not. And um, Johnson thinks it isn't. And what he says is that not only has Shakespeare, this is, um, suffered Cordelia to die in a noble cause, those are his words, not only has Shakespeare suffered Cordelia to die in a noble cause, but he has done so against the faith of chronicles, which is to say that the history that Shakespeare was using tells a different story. And the different story is that Cordelia defeats the, her elder <coughs> sisters, and she and Lear goes back on the throne, and he is king. He becomes king again. He is, um, and he rules for another two years or three years, after which he dies of old age, and then Cordelia becomes the monarch of England after the death of her father. She's queen of England in the Queen Elizabeth sense of queen of, queen of England, um, and then under pressure of a war where she loses completely and is going to be killed by her enemies in order to escape, she hangs herself. So according to Chronicles, Cordelia lived, everything's happy, but then like everyone else, things got bad later. And um, the, the badness of what happened to Cordelia um, drives her to suicide. So Shakespeare preserves the idea of Cordelia being hanged. And there's a little bit of el an element of the history that he wants to get in. He doesn't need to get it in. He's telling a completely different story, but he still um, gets that little that element of history into it. And Shakespeare is always doing that. So what Banquo is thinking about, um, what thoughts um, are occurring to him, what he wants to talk to Macbeth about, all of that could be Shakespeare... Um, keeping some version of their conspiracy against the Dunk, the real Duncan figure, keeping some version of that conspiracy within it. So does Lady Macbeth's I've Given Suck. Um, if you read the history in the footnotes, you know that she had a child by a former marriage and that, in fact, um, that's what's going to lead to all the later um, troubles with Malcolm. Um, but Macbeth... There's no step, Macbeth has no stepson. Um, there's no hint of such a figure in this play, except for her saying, I have given suck, which again seems to be Shakespeare preserving an element of the history that he's using um, because he wants to do that. Um, Talia, you were going to say something a while ago. Oh, well, a while ago, um, I was going to point out that I think he... Like Lady Macbeth displays humanity from the very beginning, in that like she can't kill Duncan herself. Yes. Yeah. Because he reminds her so much of her own father. Yeah. And they, you know, are, were arguing in the the article about the demons that she's unable to go beyond human, like being human. 
Yeah. Um, and like, I don't know, I think that's, I think that she feels guilt consistently. It's like not just after the murder. She, she can't do it before. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think, just to go back to your previous point about the friendship between them, so one thing to see in Macbeth, which I don't think you can see in earlier plays, earlier tragedies about friendship in Shakespeare, is that Macbeth reverts to something that Shakespeare is doing in his comedies. And what he does in his comedies you know, another real friendship in Shakespeare that Shakespeare solves in a very simple manner is Romeo and Tybalt. And um, how do you solve that? Well, you have Tybalt killed. Um, I'm sorry, Romeo and Mercutio. You have Tybalt killed Mercutio. And um, in the comedies, what comedies will frequently represent is a character who has to make a choice between or is forced to make a choice between friendship and love. And um, it's not a tragic choice, but it is a choice. That is to say, if you think of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Helena, Helena and Hermia are like two cherries on one stem. Um, that is, they're twin cherries. They're together. They are, they are bestests. Um, that, um, and then there are these men. And uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is also um, a I mean, thematizes this completely because there's also Hippolyta and her Amazons, and they have no interest in men. Um, and then there's also Titania and her followers, and they have no interest in the male um, fairies in in uh, in the in the land of fairies. So, um, what the male interest in all the male figures have an interest in that play in trying to loosen female friendship so that the women will turn to the men uh, at, for their primary relationship. And um, so uh, that, that loosening, I won't say necessarily dissolution, but that loosening of female friendship in order for heteronormative erotic um, to have a heteronormative erotic outcome, uh, that's, what, that's what those plays are explicitly about. If you take Merchant of Venice, um, you get the, uh, uh, the mirror image equivalent of that, which is the great friendship is between Antonio and Bassanio, and Portia has to loosen that friendship in order to win Bassanio for herself. And um, that's what she does. And uh, she does it in all sorts of different ways. She does it, first of all, most interestingly, by saving Antonio's life. And um, saving his life means that the greatest element of his friendship for Bassanio has been neutralized. That greatest element being that he will have died for Bassanio. Um, he says, um, if you repent um, that you lose your friend, he repents not that he dies for you. Um, and then he says, you know, tell your wife, speak me fair in death. Bid your, ask your wife whether Bassanio had not once a friend. 
So what he wants his last words, his last instructions are, tell your wife and bid her judge. That's his amazing phrase because, of course, she is judging. Bid her judge whether I didn't love you more than she could possibly love you and whether you therefore don't owe me more love than you could possibly owe her. And he says, I do, I do. Um, I love her, but I love you more. And she's witnessing that. So her task, besides saving um, the, the easier task of saving Antonio's life, is loosening the bond of friendship, the homoerotic bond of friendship, between Bassanio and Antonio in order to win Bassanio to herself. And um, so that competition between that, that in Shakespeare men are frequently put into, and you will see it in Antony and Cleopatra as well, between best buddy, but, but buddy's the wrong word because it really is very close friendship, um, Montanian friendship, between best friend and erotic partner or spouse, yeah, that's very much what Macbeth is about. And if you look at Lady Macbeth's motivations, you could easily see them as anti-Banquo. That is, that um, what she wants is Macbeth, and I think I'm just picking up on what you said, Holly, what she wants is Macbeth um, for, for her to be more important to Macbeth than Banquo is. And she succeeds. You'll see the same thing in Anne and Cleopatra, where the best friend is Ina Barbas. And um, is Cleopatra trying to um, split them? No. But functionally, or um, if you look at the plot structure, you will see similarities. And again, he's writing the play at the same time. Um, that, can cost, that can cast light on Hamlet, where you could see Hamlet. I don't know that it's ever been played this way. Um, but you could see Hamlet as Horatio versus Ophelia. And that it's not that either ever complains about the other, but that the um, choice Hamlet has to make is Horatio, a choice, not the choice, but a choice he has to make is Horatio versus Ophelia. And it's possibly a choice that he can resolve after Ophelia's death by becoming friends also with Laertes, Ophelia's brother. And by also, before he does that, asserting that Ophelia is more important to him than she could possibly be to Laertes. I loved Ophelia. 40,000 brothers could not, with all their quantity of love, make up my sum, he says to Laertes. That um, that moment, it's... You know, I don't, I don't want to make this, make this a kind of uh, tinker toy, um, uh, just, just slot things into, into various slots. But Laertes is, in a sense, a second Horatio at the very end of the play when he makes friends with Laertes. And Laertes is always a person he could have been friends with, a very noble youth is what he tells Horatio. And... To that extent, um, you can, in our own mental economy, and I think I'll have to explain this at some point, but in our own mental economy, um, Horatio and Laertes kind of are in the same place in Hamlet, or Laertes can sometimes double 
Horatio, not the same actor playing both, but the same, um, but a kind of psychological version of that. And um, if Hamlet and Horatio had been tricked into a duel, they would have made up the way Hamlet and Laertes do. And so in that scene in the grave, Hamlet with Laertes talking about Ophelia and they're preferring Ophelia to Laertes, that's kind of the other possible outcome that could have occurred in Hamlet if the friendship had, um, been, had, had been subordinate to the erotic relationship. Instead of the erotic, instead of Hamlet subordinating the erotic relationship to the friendship, and um, I think you know all of that is really good context for the two the two couples the, the you know the the two most amazing couples in Shakespeare, who are the Macbeths and Antony and Cleopatra, and um, both those amazing couples require or t turn out to have, as part of what happens um, in the play something go wrong with a friendship that is as deep a friendship as any friendship in Shakespeare. Um, Matt, was here? <clears throat> um, just kind of a random question. I know we've discussed a lot about the capital K versus lowercase K king. Uh -huh. Is there such a thing as a capital Q queen versus lowercase? Yeah, Queen Elizabeth. Is a, she, I mean, you could say she's a capital K queen um, <laughs> because that's really what she is. Um, as queen, you know, she calls herself a prince, but prince there means um, the leader or regent of the land. Um, so the queen's daughter is not automatically queen, and um, well, has there ever been one? I don't think so. A, a, a queen who is regent, whose daughter then becomes regent? Uh, the only one I would think is Elizabeth II because her mum was regent when she became queen. The queen mum was regent. No, her queen father regent. was king. No, her father was queen. Uh, her father no, was, her was not queen. No, but I, I mean, like, her mum was alive when she ascended to the throne. Oh, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, one but, I can think of. That's, yeah, but, like, even semi-example. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, no, her mother was certainly alive that, um, when she ascended the throne. Yeah. And, That's the only thing. Um, the only yeah, whereas, Qu whereas Queen Elizabeth I's mother was not alive. And I, mm -hmm. I don't think Caroline was alive when Victoria no. became, became queen. But that's not what I meant. I meant, um, so Caroline was not a capital K queen. Mm -hmm. And um, Anne Boleyn was not a capital K, who's Elizabeth I's mother, is not a capital K queen. So the question is, if, if Queen Elizabeth II had had a firstborn daughter instead of having Charles, um, then um, the daughter would have become, according to later laws, but the daughter would have become yeah. regent in England. But I don't think it, Iran, but that's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's ever happened. Um, but if the queen is um, the ruler, so there are two ways you can be queen. One is you're married to the king, and the other is you are ruler like Queen Elizabeth I um, or Queen Elizabeth II or Victoria. And Victoria was married to Albert, but Albert wasn't called king. Um, Elizabeth is married to Snowden, but Snowden isn't called king. So they, they, there's just a difference in terminology. Um, which, you know, it's slightly confusing, but not that confusing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Nicole. Sorry, would another example of the choice between friendship and love be maybe um, 
Antonio uh, in Twelfth Night having to choose between having um, Sebastian as his friend or his lover, and he chooses to have him as his friend? Um, where is that happening in Twelfth Night? Well, so Antonio's the captain yeah. who say who saves Sebastian and goes with him to Didn't Illyria. Say something about Antonio being in love with. Oh yeah, he's definitely in love with Sebastian. And but I'm not sure he makes a mistake. Sebastian has to choose between. Is that what you were about to say? Yeah, say I was it. like, on the other hand, like if you look at it from the other side, like Sebastian basically like ditches Antonio and like leaves him to get arrested so that he can like go marry Olivia, uh, yeah. who he doesn't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so that is she's another like, version. She, he's like, oh, she's pretty and she looks rich, so this is fine. Yeah, but you could also say that Cesario, also interestingly, Cesario, Orsino thinks Cesario is his best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it turns out Cesario is really Viola, and therefore um, they, the male friendship gives way to the heterosexual erotic relationship. Or Cesario's relationship with Olivia does the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Becomes best friend. Yeah. No. So the point is that Shakespeare is thinking about this, and um, and it's something that he's always interested in, partly for its dramatic value, um, partly it, in the comedies it is that it makes lots of happy endings possible. That is that what's hard about comedy, as they say, um, you know that old joke. I think it's a Mel Brooks joke. Uh, famous actor is on his deathbed and someone comes up to him and says um, is it hard to die and um, the actor thinks about it for a while and he says dying is easy comedy is hard um, so um, <laughs> the theater people get that um, so um, the uh, the 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 um, what one of the things that makes comedy hard is that there's always erotic competition. Um, that's what the plot is: is uh, competition. Um, you know, as as one of the things that Chaucer that Shakespeare uh, read that Chaucer wrote is the Knight's Tale. Do people know about that? And the Knight's Tale is. Um, it's long, it's good, it is a little bit boring, it's misleading as to what Chaucer is really doing. But Shakespeare wrote a play based on the Knight's Tale called The Two Noble Kinsmen, uh, his last play. Um, and then there's a movie of the Knight's Tale, um, modernized, almost no reference to Chaucer, whatever, but the story is, is you know, vaguely Chaucerian, although it takes place in uh, 21st century America. Does anyone know it? It's not a great movie called The Knight's Tale. Um, so the poster for The Knight's Tale was um, two guys, this was, this was the, um, uh, the tagline, uh, two guys, one girl, you do the math. Um, oh. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, 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 I can't imagine that was a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't blame the movie makers for their publicists. Yes, but like, they oft- it. but it is true that often true. bad movies have that, yeah, yeah, because yeah, they have to save the good lines for good movies. Yes. At any rate, <coughs> if you do the math, that is always the math of a rom com, and or almost always the math of a rom com. So the question is, how do you solve that? What makes comedy hard is that um, is that it looks like someone is going to get disappointed, and um, when there's competition, there's a winner and a loser. 
And what Shakespeare is really, really, really good at doing, you know, most obviously and in a way least interestingly in A Midsummer Night's Dream, but what he's really good at doing in comedy is having everyone happy at the end, even though um, there is erotic competition going on. So how do you have everyone happy at the end? Well, one way you can do it is by having people... um, in a completely heterosexual structure, um, not know the genders of um, various characters. And once the genders are clarified, then everything falls into place for heterosexual uh, relationship. And um, another way of doing it, which is related to the first, or maybe is, is a special case of the first, is to have um, friendship able to do some of the work of love or love able to do some of the work of friendship so that um, what can't be solved simply as can't be given simply an erotic solution can be solved when friendship um, can enter into the final balance and then you can have as you say Olivia be friends with Cesario slash Viola um, when she can't marry Cesario, but she can marry Sebastian, so she gets the um, she gets the physical um, body out of Sebastian because he looks just like Cesario, and gets the emotional friendship or the intimacy. A sister, you are she. That's what she says about Viola um, with Viola. So it's two people. Um, fulfilling the role that she had imagined one person would fulfill. Um, but the two of them together, they have it covered. And that's what happens in comedy, is that, is that everything gets covered at the end. And in tragedy, it doesn't. And that is um, what happens with uh, Laertes and with Banquo, and as you'll see with Ina Barbas. Um, Okay, so one thing that I wanted to uh, say, just picking up on that, for those, for those of you who haven't seen it, and as I say, I've only seen it on stage, but I did see it twice. There is a video of it, which I've heard is not quite as good as the stage version. But the um, Patrick Stewart Macbeth, um, one of the things I mentioned before that um, I think Ari was talking about Um, the various things the witches can be doing on stage. Um, One of the things they do, which I mentioned before in the Patrick Stewart version, is when Macbeth comes into the banquet and doesn't know where to sit, the witches are waitresses. Um, They're serving the food at the banquet. And they're silent, but all the scarier for being silent. And when Macbeth looks for a seat, they are standing in front of a seat um, and Macbeth doesn't know where to sit, and Lady Macbeth can see the seat from her angle, and she says, go sit over there. Um, and Macbeth says, where? And then the witches move, and we see Banquo sitting there. And so in the play, the way a normal way to do it would be to have something like Banquo um, with his back to the audience, or Banquo in a place where the audience can see him, but he has his um, hand covered or something like that. And Macbeth would see that all the seats are taken without seeing who has taken all the seats. And then Lady Macbeth points right to Banquo and says, there's an empty seat. And then he sees Banquo because Lady Macbeth draws his attention to that seat. 
and that's a standard way of doing it on stage. But the way they did it um, was to have the three witches then separate, and there is Banquo, and Macbeth goes crazy, which one of you have done this, and so on. And um, that's really, really well done. I think I mentioned this, but I'm not sure that that's when they had intermission. Did I tell you guys about this? So right after that scene, which... Um, Patrick Stewart is just great in it because he comes in and um, he is giving people orders for what a good time they're supposed to have. So Macbeth's line is, be large in mirth, which is usually, be large in mirth. You know, everybody have a good time. Um, but the way, the way Patrick Stewart does it is everyone is scared shitless because <laughs> it's Patrick Stewart, the murderous Macbeth. And they're at this banquet that they have to go to. And he goes around in one, um, I think it's Ross, has a cigarette in his hand that he can't light. He's trying to light a cigarette, and he's failing to light it, and Macbeth just goes right up to him and says, be large in mirth. <laughs> Have a good time. I don't think you really need to include the, the tagline, the murderous Macbeth in there. I think that if Patrick Stewart walked in and just yes. started demanding things of me, I'd be scared shitless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they do the scene, then he says, he sees Banquo, which one of you have done this, and so on. And um, he, he goes, um, he, he, he's hysterical, and um, Lady Macbeth dismisses everyone. And then at the end of that scene, it's curtain intermission. Then at, at the end of the intermission, did I not tell you guys this? They do the scene again, the exact same scene. And um, because Patrick Stewart's been so vivid, and you know there's the cigarette shaking and all that, um, you remember vividly exactly how he did it before, and he does it exactly the same way. But this time when the witches separate, the chair is empty. And so it's the exact same scene with no Banquo. And um, the fact that it's exactly the same is really powerful. On the video, they don't do this. I'm told on the video, Banquo is just there. Um, but on stage, um, it was just amazing. And what you get is this sense of, of inescapability, of repetition. It's exactly the same. You can't get away from it. Um, and and um, everything is set in stone. And um, it's really, really powerful. The other thing that they do really, really well is um, in... Before, there are various scenes that occur in the kitchen. And um, those scenes are the conversations between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Um, you know, why haven't you come to dinner? Know you not that he hath called for you? And so on. And what happens is when Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are in public talking to other people, they talk the way, the way um, they talk. But when they're in private, what's really wonderful about this is that it catches a certain kind of thing that you've all experienced at um, your elders' dinner parties, which is, um, and it's something that children can, can um, be aware of sometimes, which is um, like if your parents are fighting, but there are people coming to dinner, and um, they're both in the kitchen at the same time, um, they're not being pleasant to each other the way they are in company. And if you're not invited in the company, you might be in the kitchen watching TV and, and um, eating your, your, um, uh, your Impossible Burger um, because cows are really bad for the atmosphere. Um, 
and um, then they come in and there's all, you know, everyone is giggling and laughing and having a good time in the living room and then they come into the kitchen and they are really pissed at each other. Um, and that um, kitchen conversation between a couple when they're giving a party, just that category, does everyone have that category in their mind? Um, that, that's, what, that's the way this play works, is that, um, that talking about Duncan, talking about Banquo, um, and um, um, deciding what to do next, um, not being able to wash, Macbeth goes to the kitchen sink to try to wash the blood off his hands, and Lady Macbeth is there telling him, calm the fuck down. Um, I think that's Shakespeare's line. Um, and he's just scrubbing and scrubbing at this kitchen sink. You know, there's detergent, and it's just not working. Um, and uh, that is, that's really, that gets something about couples who are... Um, disasters for each other, but they're disasters for each other because they are so tight. That is, that what, what, what Shakespeare is doing in Macbeth is giving you a couple whose tightness is, is indexed by how disastrous they are for each other and, how <coughs> and their disastrousness for each other comes out of the fact that they are so tight, that they are so close, that nothing is going to be able to make anyone more important to either of them than the other one is. And that's the tragic, not the comic, but the tragic version of Coupledom. It's not what you're going to see in Anne and Cleopatra, although you may see a little bit of a version of it. But the, the intensity of that and the idea of having a tragedy about an intense couple, that's something really amazing. Tommy. I'm not really sure what's odder, the fact that you brought up the impossible burger there for some reason, or much worse, the fact that you said that you would be in this situation, like say I'm a kid and this with the arguing parents, I would be in the kitchen watching TV? <laughs> what would you be doing? Do you have a TV in your kitchen? <laughs> back, back in the day... Back in the day, <laughs> we had little portable TVs. Yes, we have that, little portable TVs too, but I don't keep them in my kitchen. Yeah, but you have your phone in the kitchen. Okay, so I'll be in the kitchen <laughs> looking at my phone. How's that? Eating an Impossible Burger and looking at my phone. No? As an alternative, Chef Boyardee. Chef Boyardee, yeah, no, Chef Boyardee will work. Okay. No, but but you guys don't know what TV dinners are, right? Of course I know what a TV is. You do? TV Everyone knows what a TV is. popular, actually. It's just you don't cook them in the oven anymore. You make them in the microwave. Yeah, I've seen that. All right. Yeah, we used to have TV dinners, Swanson TV dinners, and watch TV. Game shows, Jeopardy, frequently. Yeah, but we, but, and my dad did that and my mom when they were young, too, but they did it in the living room. When there were guests? Well, no, but that's not... The point is they're guests. Because there are guests, but they're all watching TV in the living room. You don't want to kick it and watch other television. 